Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So Texas Choach has come to an end. If you missed the last couple of episodes of the pod, Texas Choach is the annual celebration of Basque cider and wine that runs for two weeks across the state. And this past Wednesday was the last official day. But to cap it all off, I wanted to talk to Jasper Smith, the co-founder of Son of Man. Jasper and his wife make wild-fermented, cigardo-style cider in the Columbia Gorge of Oregon. To me, these are some of the most exciting ciders coming out of the U.S. right now. For this episode, he and I dug into the food and beverage traditions of Gipuzkoa that inspired him, and Jasper also explains how he has applied Basque cider-making technique to the heirloom apples that he sources from orchards around Mount Hood. So crack open a tall boy of Son of Man, grab your Perone, and tap in. Jasper and I started the conversation by talking about Club Sagardo, which is Son of Man's version of a wine club. You basically get ciders delivered to you multiple times a year. These are ciders that they direct import themselves. It's super rad, but I'll let him explain it. Yeah, we just launched this club that hopefully the product is supposed to get picked up like next week. But it's like a three times annually... And like six bottles of our stuff. And then each one has two, three bottle allocations of ciders that otherwise like don't get imported. And yeah, totally. It's yeah, it'll be cool. It's some really special stuff. Cause like only four brands get, make it to the U S that's always the biggest challenge with the Basque festival is like, you want it to be an opportunity for accounts to like have some creativity and shit, but inevitably like there's so few chocolinas available in the market sure. and especially cider, right? Like if you want true Basque cider, you're kind of limited in what you can work with, especially uh, here in Texas. Luckily, like there are people like you that are making Basque style cider in slightly different places. And there's a couple of French Basque ciders that people have been able to rock, mm-hmm. uh, which is cool. But the end goal, right, is getting more consumers into this style of cider and then hopefully getting more importers to bring this shit to the Texas market and the U.S. market as a whole. So Totally. Yeah, man. You got to kind of create that demand in a way. I think we've had a lot of good luck with Flood, our distributor, too. In every market we're in, like at some point, every state has their own cidery making the fucking habanero blueberry stuff, you know? like Oh, God, yeah. And like I think at some point, folks want something that's like feels special and different and like unique. And these Spanish ciders are so, I don't know. They're the first time we had them. Yeah. Like the first time we had is a steggy was like a light bulb. Like, Holy shit. I know. This is a, this is incredible. It's also just like breaking out of that, like mentality that just like in wine, all Riesling is sweet. Sure. Like getting out of the mentality that all cider is sweet. Definitely. And it's like, no, they can have the complexity and savory character of a wine or a sour beer or pet nat, whatever you want to compare it to, it doesn't have to fit in this very narrow box that I think a lot of people put cider sure. in. It's not apple soda, right? Totally. That's like a big <laughs> a part of our like marketing is that it's not <laughs> it's not an alco pop beer alternative. Like it's not a it's not there because you're like gluten free. It's there yeah. because you like like things that taste good. And if you're gluten-free, that's awesome. If you like wine and beer, but you also want to drink something different. Does that depend on like the account that you're talking to and stuff? Because like I know you guys were (sighs) featured in like Goop, right? That's an amazing plug to get, right? Yeah. But 
I'm sure there are elements of like the fact that it is a gluten-free option or that it is spontaneously fermented with no additives of any sort. Like for an account like Goop, maybe that stuff does matter more to them than than with someone else, right? The no additives, the spontaneous ferment, that stuff we play up always. Mm-hmm. The gluten-free thing, we actually have leaned like aggressively away from. Really? I think because it's like, to me, it's like, of course it is. And if you ask, if, a, if we get emails where people say, yo, just check in like cider's gluten-free, right? So, yeah, totally, 100%. But like the cans don't say gluten-free. Well, there's a similar thing going on, right, with like ingredient labels, right? Where it's a winery that says like ingredients, grapes, mm-hmm. as a way of emphasizing there are no other additives in there. Sure. Or like putting in big, big letters on the front, like zero, zero to let people know there's no like added sulfur totally. or anything like that. I, I think that to me is always really interesting, the way in which you connote something through whether it's label or branding or all that stuff. Um, I love the label of, that y'all have, just the guy, it, it's the old Basque sport of like moving rocks and shit, right? Is that is that there's, what you're referencing there? Or? It's... It's kind of an amalgamation of like, yeah, they, in Basque Country, the first time we went, we had this kind of like second aha moment of realizing that it basically looks just like Oregon, like the Pacific Northwest. Um, and then randomly, there's a, a figure on like street signs all over, like a guy holding a club. Um, mm-hmm. And he's on the crest of the state of like the coat of arms for Gipuzkoa, where San Sebastian and... Uh, most of the cider houses are <clears throat> and that character the more we kind of like dug in is a character in basque mythology who's basically like their version of bigfoot uh, yeah. again in basahoun which is the tall boys named after and it's the like crazy a, man yeah like a wild guy that lives in the woods that yeah and we just thought that was funny too because you're like oh man if you dropped an oregonian and outside of San Sebastian with a blindfold on and yanked it off they would think they're in basque country and then also they have this really weird like Bigfoot myth the same way we do. And then we kind of, yeah, it's like an artistic interpretation combining the, the two myths plus this this character from their coat of arms. Uh, I love it. Yeah. It's fun. And like, I feel like that's like the least sexy thing to talk about because it's the most pragmatic where you're like... Like label design or... Yeah, like, like yeah. there's nothing... Because then that's the most like business oriented where you're like, Oh, people eat with their eyes. We want, we want folks to see our stuff and see that it like is different and stands out and looks, especially to like folks like me and you, anyone between 21 and 35, like we want those people, progressive drinkers that are in a natty wine and sour beer. And when they see like a goofy cartoony cider label or like kind of put off, Ours feels like fun, but also kind of like I think it's a it's a really like narrow line, right? That 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 you have to straddle. Um, uh, uh, one of my episodes of this podcast was with a guy that actually designs wine labels for more natural leaning wineries. Uh-huh. Uh, he's worked with like Jose Pastor Imports. He's worked with a couple of other like people helping them kind of like rebrand and stuff like that. Actually, a homie in your neck of the woods, you know Chad Stock and Bree Stock. They previously did Minimus wine. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 definitely. So he works with him on his new label that he has okay. going. Um, and the new label has like Braille on it. Um, and he and I did an entire episode dedicated to like the aesthetics of like wine labels, especially like minimal intervention wine labels. And it is like a challenging thing to discuss because 
like you said, it's one of the least sexy parts of it. Um, but it is a way to let people know when you're looking on a shelf, especially in a retail capacity, which of these wines probably was made most thoughtfully, I would think, you know, sure. but, um, for this episode, what I'm really excited about is that I've had the chance to talk to a Chocolina winemaker. I cool. spoke to ETCR, who's at Gorondona. Okay. Um, I spoke to Alvaro de la Vina, who imports wines under the label Selection de la Vina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Partita Creus, Clolentiscus. Uh, he's got two Chocolina producers, one in Guitariaco. And that one is like naturally slightly spritzy just because it finishes its primary fermentation in bottle. Hmm, and then cool. he's got Ulibari, which is like super fucking wild from the Biscayico Chocolina, which is like aged in barrel and like is meant to age for a long time. Like current release on it is 2017 Crazy. at the wine bar. Uh, we were pouring 2009 Chocolina. And it's still tasty and like fun. It's and- so fucking good. It's so delicious. It's, it's like aged muscadet. The, that lazy character just really shines through and it still has that undercurrent of acidity. Sure. It's so cool to see, but like him talking about like how hard it is to sell library release Chocolina, like, no, this wasn't just something that was collecting dust in the warehouse. Like this was something that was meant to be aged. Yeah. You know, when he's talking about it, he was saying like, when I sell this wine in the market, I say that it's Basque white wine. I don't sure. call it chocolate because when I say chocolate, people immediately think of spritzy green, like, underripe yeah, fresh just yeah. just for the summer yeah yeah so it was cool to get those two perspectives for sure definitely our partner in spain guillermo has a little chocolate label called bly hmm. which means um in Euskara in basque means like satisfied like like feeling full and content um satisfecho as the castellanos would say yeah and he's yeah. like he's deep in that game too of like trying to show folks that like there's multiple sides uh, multiple facets to the grape and like the, yeah, like it, of course it's fun and fucking delicious to long pour it and eat it or drink it with a bunch of like gambas a la plancha. It's also like can be serious wine if you're care about it. And, and a lot of people do care about it like makers and stuff. Yeah. I think the hardest part about that though, is it's such a small esoteric region Yeah, that like, it's one thing if you're, a huge region like Rioja, you can talk about modernist versus traditionalist. It's a big enough region that people already have some idea of what that is. But when you're already dealing with a super tiny place, it's almost like whatever foothold you can get in the market. Oh, you lean into it and like, it's tough, which is why he's like, fuck it. I'm just going to say Basque white wine and people can be like, is it chocolate? And he can be like, yeah, but it's also something else. So, but anyways, like it's super cool to me to be able to talk to these two people that, you know, one of whom imports wine, the other makes wine. And then I think you're this perfect kind of like middle ground, right? Where you're making cider in Oregon in a Basque style while simultaneously selling Basque cider here in the U.S. under your Oregon label. I don't know, for you, what does Basque cider mean? Yeah, I think the the coolest thing about these Spanish ciders is that before Goop was featuring natural wine, before <laughs> you know, food and wine and Bon Appetit and Instagram was blown up with like, wasn't that wild when Isistegi was on the cover of Bon Appetit? It's fucking nuts, and it's that awesome. was crazy, uh, and it's it's cool. And before, but like the the ironic thing is that like, and it's a normal progression, but like cultural things had to happen in the states before like long before 
any any of that stuff is changing in the U.S. People in Basque Country have been making cider like this on their farmhouses for a thousand years, and like making this totally singular drink that is like somewhere between I tell people like a Belgian sour and like a funky white wine, <clears throat> and it's as a result kind of pulls from the best of both worlds. It's lower ABV, it's like 6% alcohol, so you can drink it all night, but it has this super high acidity, it has some salinity, it has a little bit of funk that makes it like really, really delicious with anything salty, fishy, fatty, which is basically Basque food, which makes sense that the two things kind of like evolve together. And, and that's kind of the thing that we are so excited about and trying to like force folks to recognize with our own product is that like, when people think of cider or cider pairing, cider and food, they think of cider and cheese. And that's kind of it. You're like, I don't know. Yeah, I have a French cider or English cider with Stilton or cheddar or something. Yeah. And like in Basque Country, this cider is eaten with anchovies, octopus, jamon. Chuleton. You get chuleton, it, steaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah a chunch. Red meat, yeah. A giant two-pound steak is like, and the drink of choice is cider. And that just was like so compelling to us and so interesting that like, what is a rustic drink also has like this foothold in gastronomy, which is so cool. You, you, I think you said that your gateway drug into the world of Basque cider was you were at a restaurant and you were given Isistegi as a pairing, right? What was the food that kind of elicited that pairing? Yeah, we were at a restaurant that has since closed in the Richmond district of San Francisco, like okay. out kind of towards the ocean and a place called Marla Bakery that I'm like, <clears throat> just one night a week did dinner. They had a big wood oven and all their bakery bread and stuff came out of the wood oven. And then one night a week, they like kept the fire going and made food. I don't remember. I remember having, I think maybe like a pork shoulder steak with padrones or something, but it wasn't, it's not like steamy Spanish or anything, but it was just stuffed out of a wood oven Hell yeah! with like the right amount of salt and an awesome squeeze of lemon. And the cider was just like awesome with it. You have a bit of a culinary background, right? Yeah, out of um, college, my wife met me to a job in, in Philly. So we moved to Philly for a couple of years, and I got a job working at a restaurant as a cook, part of the opening kitchen team at a place called Vernick Food and Drink that has since the year I was there, the two years I was there, won Best Restaurant in Philly. Got, we cooked at the James Beard House, like a bunch of cool stuff, and since has won a James Beard Award. I've never been to Philly, but strong food scene? Unbelievable. There's all of this influence from New York. Beyond the cheesesteak. You're saying that there's more than just cheesesteaks yeah. there. Yeah, and, and if you live in Philly, like the cheesesteak is almost like, that's like the second sandwich. Like roast pork is a big thing with like mm. broccoli, rob, and provolone. Like if you're- Ooh, that sounds good. Like deep, deep South Philly Italian roots, you're eating roast pork, not cheesesteak. I mean, both of those sandwiches sound like they would go hard with uh, some Isistagi or Basque cider. I mean, they would because they're like salty, fatty, a little bit rich. And then you have this Basque uh, cider that just like cuts right through it. Yeah. I, as a result of working at that restaurant was exposed to like great food and good wine. We had an awesome wine program at the time, probably didn't appreciate how like interesting and progressive it was We were selling fucking Slovenian wine and really all sorts of, I mean, things that like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know. It's not, Time hasn't passed that much, but that was in 2013, like 2012. Yeah. Like, I mean, back not- then you could probably get like gang of four gammas like by the glass. I remember, yeah. you know, 2013, you 
you could buy as much susukaru as you wanted. Like there was no issue with it. Now you, you you grovel for your allocation. So we got exposed to my favorite uh, wine to this day by a French producer named Olivier Le Messin, po- uh, Poivrecel Vincente. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had that. It's like Pinot de Nice Gamay blend. Is that imported by like Dresner? Or- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. At the time, you could just like go snag that, and now <laughs> it doesn't make it to Portland. Like we have a big as wild big Maddie wine scene in Portland and you can't get bottles of it. You have to order it from New York uh, and pay shipping. And so, yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, it's wild. Yeah. It just sparked an interest in food and beverage that stuck with me. And then we moved to the Bay area and had been, I'd been working at a company called Belcampo, which is this big uh, vertically integrated sustainable meat company. They had their own farm, their own slaughterhouse, their own brick and mortars. Similar to like Natty Wine, their their goal was to show that like you can raise animals in a sustainable, environmentally conscious way, and still like have a product at the end that's like tasty and you, you don't know. have to get the Beyond Burger patty. Yeah, like like there is there is animal agriculture that exists that like doesn't destroy the planet and the ground, you know, the groundwater and whatever with nitrogen runoff. Can you, can you do that like on a scale though? Like, like the, a big enough scale? That was the entire test and, and continues mm-hmm. to be the entire test of Bill Campo was that like you could do it on 30,000 acres up in Siskiyou County and raise, you know, thousands of cattle instead of just being a mom and pop. The goal was to show folks that like you could run a sustainable and profitable business at scale that also was like environmentally conscious and like neutral or negative in its impact. Yeah. Yeah. Did you change your meat eating habits after working there? Yeah. It's like totally made me like a classic Portland jerk. Who's like, where did my chicken come from? Yeah. yeah, You're not not eating a lot at Del Taco or Taco Bell these days. No, I like still for like the indie taqueria, I'll eat taqueria, uh, taqueria carnitas and al pastor from meat that I know is like not, <laughs> from a good spot. I mean, it, but, yeah, that's yes. kind of like the get out of jail free card, though. That's totally. like the pass. Like, I don't care where their meat comes from. I'm, I'm gonna eat the tacos. Yeah, you know. Uh, at some point, you're like, this is delicious, and you're supporting people working hard. Yeah, but yes, and like at home, we don't, we don't mess with. That's wild. I mean, it makes it tough. You're like basically eat vegetarian as a result because you're like, because that stuff's expensive. You're like, no, oh, like sure. I have meat a couple nights a week now instead of four or five or six nights a week. Yeah. And uh, that it was actually kind of serendipitous that like converged to interests, like this idea of like food and beverage, tasty things, culinary background merged with like environmentally conscious, sustainable agriculture inevitably led both my wife and I to like natural wine uh, and started getting like super interested in that. And this like, I think in part because it was so much less like bougie and alienating than like, I don't know, fucking big Napa, whatever, big name brand stuff. You could get affordable bottles of wine that were really delicious, really interesting, typically from shops where people were like super happy to talk to you about what you liked and flavors as opposed to like DOs and And scores and shit like that. Exactly. And then... It, that the next phase of that was like being exposed to these Spanish ciders and realizing that they fit right alongside all these other products. Yeah. So wine led to cider, right? Like that was the trajectory. Yeah. And wine led specifically to Basque cider because there's something about the sort of like hedonism inherent in Basque 
culture and food culture, cooking over fire, things are simple. Yeah, build on like, that a little bit. Yeah. Basque bottles, bottle of cider in Basque country is like a euro 20 or something at, at, at the grocery store or at a restaurant, maybe like three or four euros. And there's something about <clears throat> the fact that it's super cheap, cheaper than water sometimes. No, for sure. Super food friendly. You are always drinking it with other people and with a meal. You're never drinking, it's not like you crack a bottle in Basque country and drink it by yourself. You're always with people and it's always fun. It's always social. And then the bottles are like these little dinky green bottles with a, you know, with a cork and you, somebody pulls a corkscrew out of their pocket and yanks the, the thing out on the street and you start sharing a glass. And there's something about that versus like, even if they're both agricultural product, something with a cork in a cage that just feels kind of fancy. These bass ciders just feel very democratic and like down to mm. earth if, yeah. for the every man. And then as you start to like peel away the layers, you realize that these people are making the cider the same way that all of these like lauded winemakers are making wine, which is like once a year, low intervention, spontaneous ferments, super thoughtful about their fruit selection, super thoughtful about their farming. But because it's cider, it just gets like, yeah, it, it ends up being a, a buck a bottle instead of like 20. It, it's it's almost got like the the lack of pretension that beer does. Like it's got the sociable element of beer, sure. the sessionable character of beer, but has the complexity of wine and i realize i'm probably gonna get a bunch of beer nerds that are angry at me for like phrasing it that way but i think the the challenge right whenever you're talking about cider is inevitably like there's no designated like cider distributor right in most of your markets you're probably with either a wine distributor or you're with a beer distributor and most states like there's the beer shelf and there's the wine shelf. And then cider is this weird middle ground between the two, right? And it's interesting to think about where these things sit on the shelf, where they sit in a restaurant, like on the wine list, you know, or beer list or a separate section. Do they have a cider section? Sure. And a lot of places don't. Yeah. I mean, I think to the detriment of the consumer too, because when we were doing business development for the first year and trying to get folks to like pick our product up. A lot of it was on premise pre COVID when you could go like sit down and have dinner somewhere. Ah, the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> I would kill to like have, yeah, I don't know, a cocktail and sit in a comfy booth right now. Cough into my hand and just wipe my hand on my pant leg and just keep going. Not, not worry about yeah. what everyone else around you is thinking at that yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we pitched hard to like on-premise locations, to restaurants, specifically because we were like, yo, you you have this awesome wine list. In Oregon in particular, you have an awesome wine list because you have to, because you have Oregon wine country, so you've got to have Oregon wine, but more and more you have to have like these interesting imports. We have a crazy beer scene in Oregon, you know, like the, the grandpappy of craft beer. You have to have good beer. If you have shitty beer in Oregon, people would freak out and you generally have to have like pretty good cocktails. And then cider was always an item on the menu that was like there for the person that like, yeah, it was gluten-free or like, would I don't know, doesn't like red wine, but didn't like beer either. And our pitch to folks was like, yo, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have a cider on mm-hmm. the menu that complements all of the other beverages and like goes with the food that your chef is working his ass off to like make sure it's tasty and exciting. And I think that is like a really unique part of Basque ciders is that they like are super food friendly and 
as a result, that that pitch worked. Folks were like interested and willing to give us a try, which was really cool. And so like dialing into that a little bit, like Basque cider, obviously the fermentation is a big part of what makes it taste the way that it does. I imagine the fla- the apple varieties themselves, right? It's all heirloom cider apples, right? That are being used for it. They're not using eating apples. Totally. When you're creating your Basque style cider in Oregon, you don't have access to the exact same like Basque variety of apple. So like what helps kind of pay homage to that style or or that flavor profile? How do you kind of like recreate that in a place with such different apple varieties? Yeah. I mean, part of it was literally nose of the grindstone like research. So Guillermo, our our Basque partner who makes cider, he's also an oenologist, so a wine chemist. So he understands the nitty-gritty of you know, all the way down to the molecular components, like what what compounds make apples unique and and which what happens when they're fermented. And we spent the better part of two years like researching what varieties were available to us in Oregon and which which ones were the most similar to these indigenous Basque varieties. And some of that was like he was in Oregon and we would literally eat them and take notes on like, yeah, man, the, this one tastes it's brutal because like those aren't necessarily no. there for eating, right? So some I of mean. them, some of them are pretty gross and like cider apples can be super bitter, super tannic. And yeah. And sometimes you could eat th- three and then you had to take a break because your palate was so messed up, but brush some Tums and yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we, so some of it was literally f- flavor, smell, aroma, kind of like, organoleptic perception and then some of it was like looking at like yo what how what's the malic acid content what's the caffeic like things that aren't that interesting for folks not like super deep in the matrix but trying to understand like oh yeah like there are apples here that are quite similar to these basque varieties they have a different name but like you know and and they grow in a different place but they're not that different at the base level and and so we we literally work to recreate a variety mixture when we do our ferments that represents like what a what a Basque cider house would be looking for in Spain. Well, the other thing that I would imagine being the case is that some of these cider apple varieties that you're working with in Oregon, many of these cider varieties got ripped out and replaced with eating apples, right? Mm-hmm. Or something that was more commercially viable because until you came along, there probably weren't people knocking down doors trying to get these varieties. Totally. I don't know. Do you run into any sort of consistency issues from one year to the next? Less in terms of like flavor profile, because like there should be a little bit of a variation. I would, I would think like for the style of cider that you're making, that a little bit of a variation is okay. But in terms of actually sourcing of fruit, like what challenges are presented on a yearly basis? Yeah. Flavor variation is actually something that's like kind of exciting to us because we want to <laughs> lean into like the idea that it's like a vintage. A vintage, yeah. It's like an annual product uh, as opposed to something that just gets made, pumped out every six weeks with whatever flavor adjunct you add, you, you want to add. Like, so, so the idea that like, you know, a lot of apples are biennial. So like one year there'll be a big crop, the next year there'll be a little crop. And that's really true in cider apples and true in Basque country, true anywhere that people are growing apples. So some years you don't have the same fruit available. Mm-hmm. From a like sourcing standpoint, yeah, we work like really closely and I've tried to cultivate relationships with um, specifically four farms in Oregon that are growing like really awesome fruit and trying to convince them to like leave them in the ground and don't replace it with hazelnuts, don't replace it with pears, don't replace it with pinot grapes, like 
there's a market for this and the market might be us at the moment. Um, kind of hopefully like the market is other folks too. Do you have any relationship with like Nate Reddy over with a uh, high U and the smock shop band or Floreal cider that he makes? We, I like that cider a lot. We don't like work with that. Nate, they have an orchard partner called Mount Hood Organics that is their Mount Hood Organics farms. That's really cool and grows a bunch of awesome stuff. Yeah, but basically sells all their fruit to high U. So high U kind of has like a bead on from supply from one farm we work with two farms that are very close to mount organics and growing a lot of the same varieties actually but the cider making is like not that different like we do it at, i think quite a bit larger scale but the idea is like you use these great apples from this special place and like try not to get in the way no for sure i mean were you super like did the fires at all affect uh this past harvest this past vintage i don't know if apples display that same smoke taint that a lot of like uh, uh grape varieties do no we we are so lucky that like uh because because two of the growers we also work with um smoke was everywhere in oregon this fall it was awful i mean we taped literally taped our doors and, and put wet wet towels underneath our front door and stuff because it was like so intense it, looked like the apocalypse uh, in Portland and the fires were, I don't know, 80 miles away. Um, but two of the farms we work with are also in the Willamette Valley, very close to where a couple of these fires are basically like just rushing towards. And luckily apples, because their skin is different than whatever, it's, it's less porous. It's m- more of a membrane. They don't suffer from smoke tank, which is a incredible mm. <laughs> because no, that friends a lot of friends that are winemakers in Oregon that like and a lot of them that are too small to not make wine you know big really big producers just basically said cool we'll make rosé this year and dump everything else and like if you're a small producer and all of a sudden your entire vintage got messed up you just have to make the wine and try to convince people to buy it but the former guest of the pod is andy young of saint reginald parish Um, but like i remember being on the phone with him and him just saying how brutal it was this past year so you know going back to kind of like the Basque country like your first trip there what what did you do like a lot of people when they go to you know san sebastian bilbao they have you know the set idea they're going to visit michelin starred restaurants maybe they'll go to a sagardo teguia but like you were there on a mission, right? You were there to kind of like learn more about the cider production. Had you already made up your mind at that point that you were going to make Basque cider in Oregon? Or was that more of just like an R&D trip? Like, let me see what's going on in this place. This was like, yeah, it was, I don't know what the appropriate metaphor is. Wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know if it was the drop that broke the dam, whatever. But we we had known, we were like, yeah, we want to make- You were on your way to Central America for the ayahuasca. <laughs> that is the metaphor we're going to go yeah. with. You are, you are meeting with the shaman. Exactly. You are here for your uh, journey. That's, that's the game plan. Yeah. It was like, we want to do this thing. We love this thing. We need to go to the place where it's made and see yeah. what it's about. And then like the minute, you know, hour or two after getting off the plane, it was only more compelling. It was only more special and like incredible because the people are so nice. The food is so good. And we basically spent two weeks going to like two cider houses a day, like lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner, lunch, dinner, and eating and drinking and talking to people. And just like, it was unbelievable how like open everyone was. Any cider house you went to, they say, yeah, yeah, come look at, we'll show you the press. We'll, sh- we'll talk to about the back end. We'll show the bottling line. We'll, we'll drink stuff that's in the cellar that's, three years old or this other bottle, try this 
Cupella. What's that like? What, what's bottle aged or aged uh, Sagardo like? Like, what's the flavor profile? I mean, like? the stuff that is made really well is like delicious and the you know sometimes a little funky, sometimes fruity. I guess I I dug myself into the hole there because the one thing I would say is that the thing that was so compelling, also calling back to like the idea of this like hedonistic culture, is that the cider isn't really meant to like, it can age. And oftentimes they blend a little bit of last year's cider into the new cider to like create this depth of flavor and complexity that you might not get if you're just using that year's product. But there is also something really cool about the idea that they're like, yeah, man, we want it gone. We want you to drink it. Don't, don't like put it. It's not a ball of champagne. Don't put it in your cellar and like wait 15 years to finally crack it. There's something special about the idea that they're like, no, share it. Go drink it. And the other thing, right, is that a lot of these cider houses, whenever the cider finishes its fermentation in the cupolas, these big chestnut vats, then those cider houses suddenly become restaurants. So I'm sure a lot of these places are bottling it and selling it out, but many of them are selling the product direct out of the cask where sure. you can just come in, eat at the restaurant, consume it on site. We were talking earlier about how there's only a handful of these ciders that get exported to the U.S. because if you can sell it all right there, that vintage, if you can unload it all or if you can get enough people to drink it in that short period of time, like you're golden. Like why bother sending it all the way to the U.S. if you've got people in Bilbao, San Sebastian totally coming into your like actual <laughs> shop to drink it. So And it's crazy the vo- like small producers over there make the same amount of cider that we make. You know, we're doing... I don't know, 30,000 liters or something a year. And there are folks over there that sell 30,000 liters out of the cider house during church season because it's that big of a deal. Because every night, again, pre-COVID, every night, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, there's like 200 people that like having this huge meal, having a party. And yeah, and it's so, so cool. And that's church. We haven't even talked about church, but like we took that trip and it was in April right before church ended. And so we were going to all these cider houses and eating this huge meal. And like, it's hard to explain to folks that haven't experienced it, but you sit at these long communal tables and you show up and like, I speak sp- pigeon Spanish. My wife doesn't speak Spanish at all. Neither of us speak Basque because it's like the impossible because to no learn. One yeah, the, yeah. But the, only the people in Basque country speak Basque. <laughs> um, but by the end of the night, like you're having like in-depth conversations with folks at like 2 a.m. Because you're like, you've, you're full of steak and cider and it's so fun. And it's, and as people like the age range goes from whatever, 18 to 85 and you're chatting with everyone. And it's so fun. It's like those uh, like uh, Milton Bradley board games where it's like Candyland, like age, like five to 99 yeah you know exactly anyone's anyone's welcome i've seen like four-year-old kids while the dads are like having conversations with each other dad hand like a four-year-old a glass at a at church to go like fill it up for him and come back that's amazing Would not fly in the states but pretty fun to watch in spain so so for people at home that don't quite follow exactly how church is set up right church is a festival that generally begins in the middle of january it is a way to celebrate the end of the fermentation of the cider. It normally corresponds with a major Basque holiday called El Dia de San Sebastián or the Tamborada Festival. It's a 
festival that involves a lot of live music. It's kind of their version of the 4th of July. And that's kind of generally around the time that the cider finishes its low, slow, natural fermentation in these big cupolas. Cider houses then open their doors and from mid-January until the end of April, early May-ish, you know, it depends on the cider house, they turn into that restaurant and they host people for a meal that's a set meal of, you start with bacalao, salt cod, then you have your chuleton, and then you finish with some uh, sheep's milk cheese and uh, I think walnuts and a little bit of membrillo, right? Is there anything else that you got at any of your restaurants? No, I mean, yeah, the the I think the two most remarkable things are the salt cod, usually in a couple forms, omelet and then fried with peppers. And then like the idea that you get what in America would be like a $180 steak is <laughs> just part of your prefix 30 euro dinner. That's you get, yeah. You get a like a literally like a kilo, like a two pound steak. That's just like slapped on the table covered in delicious salt. So what's, I think such a challenge, right. Is in the Basque country, the context of Basque cider, it's so tethered to like food. And it's like you said, no one just like cracks one of those bottles open by themselves. It's always nestled by Persebes or really great, you know, chiperones, you know, great seafood, jamón, chuleton. And now all of a sudden you're in a position here in the U.S. where you're interfacing with buyers, you're introducing people to the style of cider because chances are a lot of the people that you're showing Son of Man to, right, they don't have that kind of experience that you had or that familiarity with Basque Cider. So like in your quick like sales pitch to people when you're talking to buyers or individuals, how do you sell them on this like millennia long tradition, you know, that's so rich in gastronomy with with this one product that you have? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the elevator pitch is that it's like everything you want in wine the ABV of beer and it tastes awesome at the river or at the beach and is also fucking awesome with dinner. So like I can't, it's hard to imagine a time when it doesn't fit in to your drinking habits. Oh yeah. Yeah. At at this point, son of man, you've got your main line. You've got the Sagardo, which is made with Oregon apples. You also have a cider that is made in the Basque country, but bottled under the son of man name. Right. <laughs> um, and then you also make a vermouth, right? Yeah. This last year we were really inspired by, um, not Basque, but a Asturian uh, cider company called Trabanco that makes a vermouth called Quinquina on Rama. That's uh, or Alma de Trabanco is the name. And it's a vermouth that has like a, I don't know if they use apple brandy or grappa or whatever as the spirit, but then has their cider and other botanicals in it and it's really tasty and like fun and um, a little lower abv so you don't like it, it's easier to sip on an ice cube and we just wanted to make something that was kind of like that too to show folks again that like cider can be beyond like more than what you're anticipating so this year we made we partnered with a really cool bar in portland called someday and made a, a vermouth that has our cider um, a brandy made from uh, cider that we had distilled and then a lot of like really warm fall Amaro flavors, star anise, cinnamon, clove, and gentian to make it a little bitter, a bunch of orange, bitter orange. And then it's sweetened with a little bit of um, simple syrup made from fresh pineapple and quince. Damn, does Flood have any of this in stock? <laughs> we're sold out. Yeah, we're going to make a little more God this year. damn it. Uh, All right. We'll, we'll get a bottle in the mail though. Yeah, give us, right. give us we'll the mailing address. Yeah. 
<laughs> we'll save that for off pod. Yeah. But uh, um, the other thing that I'm thinking about is right. Basque cider is, you know, so traditionally spontaneously fermented. And I know that in the beer world, spontaneously fermented beer is more of a rarity, whereas in wine, it's a pretty common sure. occurrence. Are, what's the culture of fermentation in the world of cider specifically? Granted, there aren't as many people doing it. What, what's kind of the vibe there? Like, are a lot of people spontaneously fermenting their cider? Is it like a super rare thing that's, I don't know, frowned upon by some? Like, what's the vibe? I would say definitely more like beer cider in the u.s has clearly aligned with with the beer market and, and aims to make like really uniform product because when you crack a, I don't know what good what, what's the biggest uh craft brewery in texas a uh, craft brewery i would say um uh probably saint arnold sure. is the one you know i think jester king is probably the one that has the most prestige because they're the ones that spontaneously ferment have their own like I, like monoculture have you had any of the jester king stuff uh, yeah really good but that's a, those are good foils because i feel like when you crack a saint arnold a saint arnold is a clean beer like pilsner super clean yeah. yeah so like when you crack a saint arnold pilsner you want it to taste the same 100 percent of the time and it's a problem if they don't mm -hmm. when you crack a jester king spontaneously fermented beer that was aged in barrels on different fruit like every year and, and you know, blended from various vintages, like each one is going to have its own character inevitably. And insider in the States definitely folks align more with that, like kind of traditional beer model where you're like, you have a champagne yeast. Oftentimes you have your juice, you have your adjunct flavor and it's very formulaic more and more often on a smaller scale, like a much smaller scale than us even, um, there are folks getting into like spontaneous ferment, I think in part because like Natty Wine has helped people realize that like there's a market for a product made without a bunch of stuff added to it. Yeah. But I, I, I can't think of anybody, and this isn't to toot our own horn, but like I can't think of anybody making 30,000 liters or 40,000 liters of cider in the States entirely spontaneously. No, for sure. And I think I think the challenge, right, is being able to grow organically in a way where you don't lose any of that. Sure. And that's what's, for me, been really cool to see about y'all is the fact that, like, I feel like every year I see more and more Son of Man available in the market. And it, it, it feels very organic. It feels like it's just growing at, like, a fast pace, but in a way where there's no loss in quality. Like, it, this year's vintage, whatever I had most recently, I can't remember which vintage yeah, it was. 20, but the 2019 it, is what they have in Texas, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what I had. I'm trying to remember when we opened it. I think it was maybe around Christmas time. Cool. We grilled oysters and it was like so fucking good. Sweet. It's awesome. Yeah, it was great. I mean, the, the reality is that it's like a different financial model too. Like we make a batch a year and if you want to grow, that means you have to add a tank as opposed to like making multiple batches every month or something on the infrastructure you have. So it's a commitment it's like a trade-off. You're like, yeah, I'm working with these farmers that grow great fruit. And like, I want to respect that. And I have my own ideas of like how a product should be because nobody, I mean, if, if wine was made every six weeks, it wouldn't be special. Right. Like, and I don't necessarily want people to view our product as like fine wine, but I want people to understand that. Um, it's not commoditized in the way a lot of, other yeah, it's, it's something that like people thought a lot about, one time a year, put a shit ton of work in to make sure that like it tasted good and it's not, um, 
it, yeah, it's not just a recipe that we follow. Um, and as a result, that means that like, yeah, we've, we grew this year quite a bit, which is awesome. We added a new, a couple new fermentation vessels and we're thinking about growing this coming year. Um, but that's not a reality for a lot of businesses too. Like we've had good success and are able to like lean into that growth, but it is an expensive way to grow because you have to buy expensive fruit and you have to have a tank to put the juice in that you didn't have the year before. Um, so it's a little more complicated. And do you guys work with like a mobile bottling line that comes to you or? This is like going to be insane. But like like last year, for example, we hand bottled 24,000 bottles. <laughs> you, you crazy. Yeah. You crazy. What you doing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's nuts. It takes a, like a week, a full week with like multiple shifts of people basically volunteering time to come help. Um, what music are you blasting to get you through that? It's on the time of day. Yeah. So there's a, occasionally when energy is low, you put like rage on this against the machine on or something. And okay. other times it's Lizzo and things that are like upbeat. And then sometimes you're like, no, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. funny. All right. Fun. Um, and then is that, I realize that the Bassajon is uh, canned. Is that, is that mostly for like, exporting purposes like there's a it's easier to bring in something that's canned as opposed to bottled um like what's kind of the the logic for some things being bottled and some things being canned i think just to give folks like a special product in a format that people aren't often associating a special product in like that's fair um you know more and more craft breweries are putting cool stuff into tall boys but like to show people that, I, I don't know, that, yeah, like the tall boys of cider on the shelf at your local grocery store oftentimes are like, I don't know, not that interesting, not that good. And we wanted to be like, yeah, you can get like a tall boy of cider and it can yeah. also be really cool and doesn't have to be a compromise. Yeah. I love the people putting Paquette in tall boys as well. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've done a really good job of covering a lot of things, checking a lot of boxes, but is there anything else that someone listening to this, you'd want them to take away from our conversation? Go to Basque country. First of all, like the minute you can travel and it's safe and it's not anxiety ridden. I feel like most Americans, when they go to Spain, hit Barcelona, Madrid, Sevilla, maybe, or Southern Valencia or something like that. Yeah. But it's hard to get to the Basque country. Like, it's not necessarily the easiest thing. Like, no. the Donostia airport, you know, is not... It's like, yeah, it's super tiny. There's no fast train that goes there, I don't think. There wasn't when I was there. Uh, you had to take a bus from Madrid. Which is <laughs> and it's not a short drive. That's like a six-hour drive or something. Um, yeah, I like, it's not the easiest to get to, but it is unbelievably rewarding and compelling. And you're right on the, you know... Then you're on the Atlantic coast and you have La Rioja yeah. right there. Uh, you're from San Sebastian. You're 30 minutes to France. Uh, like when I went most recently, I flew into Bordeaux airport and I just drove south down. and yeah. that was actually a way easier drive, uh, rented a car and it was super easy. Um, that's the route I did. So what'd yeah. you do? What was your route? We've gone a couple times where we've gone to Madrid first and then driven over. And then a, a couple times where we've gone to, once we flew straight into San Sebastian, once we flew into Bilbao and, um, but yeah, it's like, it can add a little, if you're flying a little bit of cost or time. Um, but it's just like, so it, I've not met a single person that's been there that's had anything except unbelievable positive things to say. Like once you go, 
you like want to go again. I feel like there's a uniquely millennial American thing where you're like, I don't want to go to the same place twice. And like Basque country, like, no, I'll go back there. I feel <laughs> yeah. like I didn't do enough. I haven't seen enough. There's so much awesome yeah. stuff going on. 100% agree. Hell yeah. Awesome. Well, Jasper, thank you so much for your time. If people want to learn more about Son of Man, where can they find you on Instagram, the interwebs? Yeah, Son of, the Insta handle and the website are the same, just sonofman.co. Yeah, go to the website. We have a web store. We ship to like 38 states or something. And then Insta is where you find out about all of the weird new stuff we're doing, like Vermouth. So, yeah. I love it. Cool. Awesome. Well, cheers, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. And those of you in Texas that visited your bottle shops, restaurants, or wine bars that were participating in Texas Choach, we appreciate you drinking that Chocolina, Sagardoa, Basque Wine and Cider. We'll be back with another Texas Choach next year, and we'll be back with another episode of By the Glass next week. So if you haven't already subscribed, smash that follow button, and we'll see you soon.